Podcastle, episode 206, for May 1st, 2012. Another word for map is faith, by Christopher Rowe. Rated PG. Maybe? Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and have I ever talked to you all about my time as a missionary? No? Well, grab some bread and red wine, if you're not driving, that is. If you are, I hear grape juice is a good substitute. And let's talk. Now, I'm not speaking about Dr. Livingston-type stuff, getting lost in the jungles, or Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles in a country at the risk of his life. This was decidedly a different kind of gig. My wife and I decided to move to Germany for a year and work in the dormitory of a boarding school for missionary children. The parents of these kids were doing missionary work in countries that didn't have a strong education system, and so they sent their children to this school run by American and Canadian missionaries in Germany, because it was a lot closer than North America. We worked in this dormitory where 30 junior high and high school boys lived. We made sure they did their homework, got to school, went to church, brushed their teeth, all the important stuff, and actually, we found out one kid lost his toothbrush and decided to go without it for a couple of months, which was pretty nasty. Anyway, when we got to Germany, our dorm dad was going over our responsibilities with us. He said something that's stuck in my head ever since. Missionaries are like manure. Spread them around and they're great. Put them together in a pile and they all stink. And there were a lot of missionaries in this little German town. A big missionary community had been built up around the school to keep it running, which meant a lot of Christians from a lot of different denominations. One of my best friends who I still keep in touch with is an evangelical Mennonite. Yeah, so you can imagine some of the weird denominational conflicts that came up in everyday life, and they usually led to us, the RAs, doing a lot of weird stuff and erring on the side of caution lest we offend anyone. Like, if the kids wanted to watch a video, they couldn't go out to the movies. We had to look the movie up and deem whether or not it was appropriate for them, which meant checking on a website to see whether or not anyone showed any skin or had sex, and of course violence was alright, as long as it was PG-13. For example, do you remember that sweet little rom-com, Ten Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles? Yeah, that caused a big uproar. I actually remember a woman from another dorm asking if we'd watch that movie if Jesus was sitting beside us. And I almost said, shit, I'd watch Kevin Smith's dogma sitting next to Jesus. And if there was any profanity in the videos, well, no worries. We just hooked it up to the beatbox, an ingenious little contraption that when it detected a swear word would switch the video to closed captioning and replace the word with something less offensive. Now, even as a young evangelical geek, one who liked watching Kevin Smith movies and reading Neil Gaiman books, I found the beatbox highly problematic. It either gave certain words more power, or oftentimes it made the situation more complex than they needed to be. When Tom Jones sang What's New Pussycat at the end of Cats vs. Dogs, it replaced pussy with kitten. And Toy Story, oh my god, Toy Story? It decided to replace Woody's name throughout the entire movie with, wait for it, Strong Feeling. Yeah. Why some of us didn't decide to try to watch Pulp Fiction After Hours with the beatbox is beyond me. That would have been awesome. Anyway, 
some of the things in today's story reminded me of those denominational differences in general. Today at PodCastle, we do have a story featuring missionaries of a different sort of variety. We're proud to present Another Word from Map is Faith by Christopher Rowe, originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I feel it should be noted it was also reprinted in Science Fiction, The Best of 2007, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, The Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, and The Best American Short Stories, also all 2007. Oh, and it was translated into Polish, Czech, and the Hebrew languages. Author Christopher Rowe lives in Lexington, Kentucky, and his stories have been published in Realms of Fantasy, Idiomancer, and other cool places. We'll link to his website in our show notes. Our reader today is Anne Leckie, who, as our constant slush reader and the editor of the awesome Giganotosaurus, needs no introduction. I will, however, mention some fantastic Anne Leckie news. She's written an amazing science fiction novel called Justice of Torn, which is going to blow people's minds, and now she's got an agent to represent it for her. I'm really, really stoked about this, and we'll definitely keep you informed and up to date when Anne sells it, but drop on by and tell Anne congratulations if you get a chance. So, grab your maps, and remember, X never, ever marks the spot. Enjoy the story. Another word for map is faith, by Christopher Rowe. The little drivers threw baggage down from the top of the bus and out from its rusty undercarriage vaults. This was the last stop. The road broke just beyond here, a hundred yards short of the creek. With her fingertip, Sandy traced the inked ridge northeast along the map, then rolled the soft leather into a cylinder and tucked it inside her vest. She looked around for her pack and saw it tumbled together with the other cartographer's luggage at the base of a catalpa tree. Lucas and the others were sorting already, trying to lend their gear some organization, but the stop was a tumult of noise and disorder. The high country wind shrilled against the rush of the stony creek. Disembarkees pawed for their belongings and tried to make sense of the delicate, coughing talk of the unchurched little drivers. On the other side of the valley across the creek, the real ridge line, the geology, her father would have said disdainfully, stabbed upstream. By her rough estimation, it had rolled perhaps two degrees off the angle of its writ mapping. Lucas would determine the exact discrepancy later when he extracted his instruments from their feather and wax paper wrappings. Third world bullshit, Lucas said, walking up to her. The transit services people from the university paid these little schemers before we ever climbed onto that death trap, and now they're asking for the fare. Lucas had been raised near the border, right outside the last town the bus had stopped at, in fact, though he dismissed the notion of visiting any family. His patience with the locals ran inverse to his familiarity with them. Does this count as a third world, she asked him. Doesn't there have to be a general for that? Rainforests and steel ruins? Lucas gave his half-grin, not quite a smirk, acknowledging her reduction. Cartographers were famous for their willful ignorance of social expressions like politics and history. Carmen paid them anyway, he told her as they walked towards their group, probably out of her own pocket, thanks be for wealthy dilettantes. Not fair, said Sandy. She's as sharp as any student in the seminar, and a better hand with the plotter than most postdocs, much less grad students. Lucas stopped. I hate that, he said quietly. I hate when you separate yourself. Go out of your way to remind me that you're a teacher and I'm a student. Sandy said the same thing she always did. I hate when you forget it. Against all odds, they were still meeting the timetable they'd drawn up back at the university all those months ago. 
The bus pulled away in a cloud of noxious diesel fumes an hour before dark, leaving its passengers in a muddy camp dotted with fire rings, but otherwise marked only by a hand-lettered sign pointing the way to a primitive latrine. The handful of passengers not connected with Sandy's group had melted into the forest as soon as they'd found their packages. Salt and sugar, Lucas had said. They're backwoods people, head shamans and survivalists. There's every kind of lunatic out here. This left Sandy to stand by and pretend authority while the forestry graduate student whose services she'd borrowed showed them all how to set up their camps. Carmen, naturally, had convinced the young man to demonstrate tent pitching to the others using her own expensive rig as an example. The olive-skinned girl sat in a camp chair folding an onion-skinned scroll back on itself and writing in a wood-bound notebook while the others struggled with canvas and willow poles. Keeping track of our progress, Sandy asked, easing herself onto the ground next to Carmen. I have determined, Carmen replied, not looking up, that we have traveled as far from a hot water heater as is possible and still be within Christendom. Sandy smiled but shook her head, thinking of the most remote places she'd ever been. Davis, she asked, watching her student's reaction to mention of that unholy town. Carmen, a Californian, shuddered but kept her focus. There's a naval base in San Francisco, see? They've got all the amenities, surely. Sandy considered again, thinking of cold camps and old mountains, and of muddy jungle towns ten days' walk from the closest bus station. Cape Canaveral, she said. With quick, precise movements, Carmen folded a tiny desktop over her chair's arm and spread her scroll out flat. She drew a pair of calipers out from her breast pocket and took measurements, pausing once to roll the scroll a few turns. Finally, she gave a satisfied smile and said, Only 55 miles from Orlando. We're almost twice that from Louisville. She'd made the mistake Sandy had expected of her. But Orlando, Senorita Reyes, is Catholic, and we were speaking of Christendom. A stricken look passed over her student's face, but Sandy calmed her with exaggerated conspiratorial looks left and right. Some of your fellows aren't so liberal as I am, Carmen, so remember where you are, remember who you are, or who you're trying to become. Another reminder issued, Sandy went to see to her own tent. The forestry student gathered their wood and brought them water to reconstitute their freeze-dried camp meals, then withdrew to his own tent far back in the trees. Sandy told him he was welcome to spend the evening around their fire. You built it after all, she'd said, but he'd made a convincing excuse. The young man pointed to the traveling shrine her students had erected in the center of their camp, pulling a wooden medallion from beneath his shirt. That Christ you have over there, ma'am, he said. He's not this one, is he? Sandy looked at the amulet he held, gilded in green. What do you have there, Jesus in the trees? she asked, summoning all her professional courtesy to keep the amusement out of her voice. No, that's not the Christ we keep. We'll see you in the morning. They didn't, though, because later that night Lucas discovered that the forest they were camped in wasn't supposed to be there at all. He'd found an old agricultural map somewhere and packed it in with their little traveling library. Later he admitted that he'd only pulled it out for study because he was still sulking from Sandy's clear signal he wouldn't be sharing her tent that night. Sandy had been leading the rest of the students in some prayers and thought exercises when Lucas came up with his moldering old quarto. Tillage, he said, not even bothering to explain himself before he'd foisted the book off on his nearest fellow. All the acreage this side of the ridgeline is supposed to be under tillage. Sandy narrowed her eyes, more than enough to quiet any of her charges, much less Lucas. What's he got there, Ford? she asked the thin undergraduate who now held the book. Hmm, said the boy. He was one of those who fell instantly and almost irretrievably into any text and didn't look up. Then, at an elbow from Carmen, he said, Oh, this is... He turned the book over in his hands, angled the spine toward one of the oil lamps, and read, This is an agricultural atlas of Clark County, Kentucky. 
County, said Carmen. Old book, Lucas. But it's writ, said Lucas. There's nothing superseding the details of it, and it doesn't contradict anything else we brought about the error. Hell, it even confirms the error we came to correct. Involuntarily, all of them looked up and over at the apostate ridge. But what's this about tillage, Sandy said, giving him the opportunity to show off his find, even if it was already clear to her what it must be. See, these plot surveys in the appendices didn't get accounted for in the literature survey we're working from. The book's listed as a source, but only as a supplemental confirmation. It's not just the ridge that's wrong. It's the stuff growing down this side, too. We're supposed to be in grain fields of some kind down here on the flats. Then it's pasturage on up to the summit line. A minor fine, sure, but Sandy would see that Lucas shared authorship on the corollary she'd file with the university. More importantly, it was an opportunity before the hard work of the days ahead. We can't do anything about the hillsides tonight, or any of the acreage beyond the creek, she told them. But as for these glades here... It was a simple exercise. The fires were easily set. In the morning, Sandy drafted a letter to the Dean of Agriculture while most of her students packed up the camp. She had detailed a few of them to sketch the corrected valley floor around them, and she'd include those visual notes with her instructions to the Dean, along with a copy of the rip map from Lucas's book. Read that back to me, Carmen, she said, watching as Lucas and Ford argued over yet another volume, this one slim and bound between paper boards. It was the same backcountry cartographer's guide she'd carried on her own first wilderness forays as a grad student. They'd need its detailed instructions on living out of doors without the tree Jesus boy to help them. By my hand, read Carmen, I have caused these letters to be writ. Blessings on the Department of Agriculture and on you, Dean. Blessings on Jesus Sower, the Christ you serve. Skip to the end, dear. Sandy had little patience for the formalities of academic correspondence and less for the pretense at holiness the agriculturalists made with their little fruiting Christ. So then, it is seen in these texts that cartography has corrected the error so far as in our power, and now the burden is passed to you and your brethren to complete this holy task and return the land to that of Jesus' vision. Carmen paused. Then you promise to remember the dean in your prayers and all the rest of the politess. Good. Everything observed. Make two copies and bring the original to me for sealing when you're done. Carmen turned to her work and Sandy to hers. The ashen landscape extending up the valley was still except for some ribbons twisting in a light breeze. The ribbons were wax-sealed to the parchment banner her students had set at first light, the new map of the valley floor drawn in red and black against a cream background. Someone had found the blackened disc of the forestry student's medallion and leaned it against the base of the banner's staff, and Sandy wondered if it had been Carmen, prone to sentiment, or perhaps Lucas, prone to vague gestures. By mid-morning, the students had readied their gear for the march up the ridge line, and Carmen had dropped Sandy's package for the university in the mailbox by the bus stop. Before they hoisted their backpacks, though, Sandy gathered them all for fellowship and prayer. The gymnasiums at the university have made us fit enough for this task, and here she made a playful flex with her left arm, earning rolled eyes from Lucas and a chuckle from the rest. The libraries have given us the woodcraft we need, and the chapels have given us the sustenance of our souls. Sandy swept her arm north to south, indicating the ridge. When I was your age, oh, so long ago. And a pause here for another ripple of laughter, acknowledgement of her dual status as youngest tenured faculty member at the university and youngest ordained minister in the Curia. When I was your age, I was blessed with the opportunity to go to the Northeast, traveling the lands beyond the Susquehanna, searching out error. Sandy smiled at the memory of those times. Could they be ten years gone already? I traveled with men and women strong in the Lord, soldiers and scholars of God. There are many errors in the Northeast. 
Maps so brittle with age that they would flake away in the cold winds of the Adirondack passes, so faded that only the mightiest of prayers would reveal Jesus' true intentions for his world. But none here in the heartlands of the church, right? Isn't that what our parish priest told us growing up? The students recognized that she was beginning to teach and nodded, murmured assent. Christians, there is error here. There is error right before our eyes. Her own students weren't a difficult congregation to hook, but she was gratified nonetheless by the gleam she caught in most of their eyes, the calls louder now of yes and I see it, I see the lie. I laid down my protractor, friends. I know exactly how far off north Jesus mapped this ridgeline to lay, she said, sweeping her arm in a great arc, taking in the whole horizon. And that ridgeline sins by two degrees. May as well be two hundred, said Carmen, righteous. Sandy raised her hand, stopped them at the cusp of celebration instead of loosing them. Not yet, she said. It's tonight. It's tonight we'll sing down the glory. Tonight we'll make this world the way it was mapped. The march up the ridgeline did not go as smoothly as Sandy might have wished, but the delays and false starts weren't totally unexpected. She'd known Lucas, a country boy after all, would take the lead, and she'd guessed that he would dead-end them into a crumbling gully or two before he picked the right route through the brambles. If he'd been some kind of natural-born hunter, he would never have found his way to the Lord or to education. Ford and his friends, all of them destined for lecture halls and libraries, not field work, made the classic, the predicted mistake she'd specifically warned against in the rubric she'd distributed for the expedition. If we're distributing 600 pounds of necessities across 22 packs, she asked Ford, walking easily beside him as he struggled along a game trail, how much weight does that make each of us responsible for? A little over 27 pounds, ma'am, he said, wheezing out the reply. And did you calculate that in your head like a mathematician, or did you remember it from the syllabus, Sandy asked. She didn't press too hard. The harshness of the lesson was better imparted by the straps cutting into his shoulders than by her words. I remembered it, Ford said. And because he really did have the makings of a great scholar, and great scholars are nothing if not owners of their own errors, he added, It was in the same paragraph that said not to bring too many books. Exactly, she said, untying the leather cords at the top of his pack and pulling out a particularly heavy-looking volume. She couldn't resist looking at the title page before dropping it into her own pack. Unchurched tribes of the Chiapas Highlands, a bestiary. Think we'll make it to Mexico on this trip, Ford, she asked him, teasing a little. Ford's face reddened, even more from her attention than it had from the exertions of the climb. He mumbled something about migratory patterns and then leaned into the hike. If most of the students were meeting their expectations of themselves and one another, then Carmen's sprightly, sure-footed bounding up the trail was a surprise to most. Sandy, though, had seen the girl in the gym far more frequently than the other students, most of whom barely met the minimum number of visits per week required by their advising committees. Carmen was as much an athlete as herself, and the lack of concern the girl showed about dirt and insects was refreshing. So it was Carmen who summoned first, and it was her that was looking northeast with a stunned expression on her face when Sandy and Lucas reached the top side by side. Following Carmen's gaze, Lucas cursed and called for help in taking off his heavily laden pack before he began unrolling the oilcloth cases of his instruments. Sandy simply pursed her lips and began a mental review of her assets, the relative strengths and weaknesses of her students, the number of days' worth of supplies they carried, the nature of the curia-designed instruments that Lucas exhibited a natural affinity for controlling. She began to nod. She'd marshaled more than enough strength for the simple tectonic adjustment they'd planned. She could set her own unquestionable faith against this new challenge if it revealed any deficiencies among her students.
She would make a show of asking their opinions, but she already knew that this was a challenge she could meet. Ford finally reached the top of the ridge line, not so much climbing as stumbling to the rocky area where the others were gathering. Once he looked up and around, he said, The survey team that found the error in the ridge's orientation, they didn't come up here. They were specifically scouting for projects that the university could handle, said Sandy. If they'd been up here, they would have called in the mission service, not us. Spread out below them, ringed in tilled fields and dusted with a scattering of wooden fishing boats, was an unmapped lake. Sandy set Ford and the other bookish scholars to cataloging all of the texts they'd smuggled along so they could be integrated into her working bibliography. She hoped that one of them was currently distracted by waterways the way that Ford was distracted by fauna. Lucas set their observation instruments on tripods in an acceptably devout semicircle, and Sandy permitted two or three of the others to begin preliminary sightline measurements of the lake's extent. It turns my stomach, said Lucas, peering through the brass tube of a field glass. I grew up seeing the worst kind of blasphemy, but I could never imagine that anyone could do something like this. You need to work on that, said Sandy. Lucas was talking about the landscape feature cross-haired in the glass, a clearly artificial earthworks dam complete with a retractable spillway. Missionaries see worse every day. Lucas didn't react. He'd never abandoned his ambition, even after she'd laughed him down. Our sisters and brothers in the mission service, she'd said, with the authority that only someone who'd left that order could muster, make up in the pretense of zeal what they lack in scholarship and access to the divine. Anyone can move a mountain with whips and shovels. The sketchers showed her their work, which they annotated with Lucas's count and codification of architectural structures, fence lines, and crops. Those are corn cribs, he said. That's a meeting house. That's a mill. This was the kind of thing she told him he should concentrate on. The best any of them had to offer was the overlay of their own personal ranges of unexpected expertise onto the vast body of accepted cartography. Lucas's barbaric background, Ford's holographic memory, Carmen's cultured scribing, her own judgment. They're marmotas, said Ford. They all looked up at where he'd been awkwardly turning the focus wheel on one of the glasses. Like in my book. He wasn't one to flash a triumphant grin, which Sandy appreciated. She assented to the line of inquiry with a nod, and he hurried over to the makeshift shelf that some of his friends had been using to stack books while they wrote their list. The unchurched all looked alike to Sandy, differing only in the details of their dress, modes of transportation, and to what extent the curia allowed interaction with them. In the case of the little drivers, for example, tacit permission was given for commercial exchange because of their ancient control of the bus lines, but she'd never heard of Marmotas and said so. They're called rooters around here, said Lucas. I don't know what Ford's on about. I've never heard of them having a lake, but they've always come into the villages with their vegetables, so far as I know. Not always, said Carmen. There's nothing about any unchurched lineages in the glosses of the maps we're working from. They're as new as that lake. Sandy recognized that they were in an educable moment. Everybody come here. Let's meet. Let's have a class. The students maneuvered themselves into the flatter ground within the horseshoe of instruments, spreading blankets and pulling out notebooks and pens. Ford laid his bestiary out, a place marked about a third of the way through with the bright yellow fan of a fallen ginkgo leaf. Carmen's brought up a good point, said Sandy, after they'd opened with a prayer. There's no cartographical record of these diggers, or whatever they're called, along the ridge line. I don't think it matters necessarily, though, said Carmen. There's no record of the road up to the bus stop, either, or of Lucas's village. Towns and roads are thin scrims and outside our purview. Sandy recognized the quote as being from the autobiography of a radical cleric intermittently popular on campus. 
It was far from writ, but not heretical by any stretch of the imagination, and besides, she had her own enthusiasms for colorful doctrinal interpretations when she was younger. She was disappointed that Carmen would let her tendency toward error show so plainly to the others, but let it pass, confident that one of the more conservative students would address it. Road building doesn't affect landscape, asked Lucas on cue. The mapmaker used road builders to cut canyons all over the continent. Ford, maybe Carmen needs to see the cut lines on your contour maps of the bus routes. Before Ford, who was looking somewhat embarrassed by the exchange, could reply, Carmen said, I'm not talking about the mapmaker, Lucas. I'm talking about your family back in the village we passed yesterday. Easy, Carmen, said Sandy. We're getting off task here. The question at hand isn't whether there's error. The error is clear. We can feel the moisture of it on the breeze blowing up the hill right now. Time to shift directions on them to turn them on the right path before they can think about it. The question, she continued, is how much of it we plan to correct. Not whether they'd correct, don't leave that option for them. The debate she'd let them have was over the degree of action they'd take, not whether they'd take any at all. The more sophisticated among them, Ford and Carmen, sure, but even Lucas, to his credit, instantly saw her tack and looked at her with eyebrows raised. Then Lucas reverted to type and actually dared to say something. We haven't prepared for anything like this. That lake is more than a mile across at its broadest. A mile across, yes, said Sandy dismissively. Carmen, what scale did you draw your sketch of the valley in? Carmen handed her a sheaf of papers. 24K to 1, is that all right? Good, good, said Sandy. She smiled at Ford. That's a conversion even I can do in my head. So, if I compare the size of the dam, and she knitted her eyebrows, calculating, if I compare the dam to the ridge, I see that the ridge we came to move is about 300 times the larger. Everyone began talking at once and at cross-purposes. A gratifying number of students were simply impressed with her cleverness and seemed relaxed, sure that it would be a simple matter now that they'd been shown the problem in the proper perspective. But Carmen was scratching some numbers in the dirt with the knuckle of her right index finger, and Ford was flipping through the appendix of one of his books, and Lucas... Lucas stood and looked down over the valley. He wasn't looking at the lake and the dam, though, or even at the village of the unchurched creatures who had built it. He was looking to his right, down the eastern flank of the ridge they stood on, down the fluvial valley, towards where it suddenly occurred to Sandy. He'd grown up, towards the creekside town they'd stopped in the day before. Ford raised his voice above an argument he'd been having with two or three others. Isn't there a question about what that much water will do to the topography downstream? I mean, I know hydrology's a pretty naughty problem, theologically speaking, but we'd have a clear hand in the erosion, wouldn't we? What if the floodwaters subside off ground that's come unripped because of something that we did? That is a naughty problem, Ford, said Sandy, looking Lucas straight in the eye. What's the best way to solve a difficult knot? And it was Lucas who answered her, nodding cut through it. Later, while most of the students were meditating in advance of the ceremony, Sandy saw Carmen moving from glass to glass, making minute focusing adjustments and triangulating different views of the lake and the village. Every so often she made a quick visual note in her sketchbook. It's not productive to spend too much time on the side effects of an error, you know, Sandy said. Carmen moved from one instrument to the next. I don't think it's all that easy to determine what's a side effect and what's okay, she said. Sandy had lost good students to the distraction she could see now in Carmen. She reached out and pivoted the cylinder down so that its receiving lens pointed straight at the ground. There's nothing to see down there, Carmen. Carmen wouldn't meet her eye. I thought I'd record... 
Nothing to see, nothing to record. If you could go down and talk to them, you wouldn't understand a word they say. If you looked in their little huts, you wouldn't find anything redemptive. There's no cross hanging in the wall of the meeting house. No Jesus of the digging marmots. When the water is drained, we won't see anything along the lake bed but mud and whatever garbage they've thrown in off their docks. The lake doesn't have any secrets to give up. You know that. Ford's books... Ford's books are by anthropologists who are halfway to being witch doctors as far as most respectable scholars are concerned and who keep their accreditation by dint of the fact that their field notes are good intelligence sources for the mission service. Ford reads them because he's got an overactive imagination and he likes stories too much. Lots of students in the archive concentration have those failings. Most of them grow out of it with a little coaxing. Like Ford will, he's too smart not to. Just like you're too smart to backslide into your parents' religion and start looking for souls to save where there are no souls to be found. Carmen took a deep breath and held it, closed her eyes. When she opened them, her expression had folded into acquiescence. It's not the least of my sins that I force you to spend so much time counseling me, Reverend, she said formally. Sandy smiled and gave the girl a friendly squeeze of the shoulder. Curiosity and empathy are healthy and valuable, senorita, she said. But you need to remember that there are proper channels to focus those things into. Prayer and study are best, but drinking and carousing will do in a pinch. Carmen gave a nervous laugh, eyes widening. Sandy could tell that the girl didn't feel entirely comfortable with the unexpected direction of the conversation, which was, of course, part of the strategy for handling backsliders. Young people in particular were easy to refocus on banal and harmless sins and away from thoughts that could actually be dangerous. Fetch the others up here now, Sandy said. We should set to it. Carmen soon had all 20 of her fellow students gathered around Sandy. Lucas had been down the eastern slope far enough to gather some dead wood, and now he struck it ablaze with a flint and steel from his travel kit. Sandy crumbled a handful of incense into the flames. Ford had been named the seminar's lector by consensus, and he opened his text. Blessed are the mapmakers, he said, for they hunger and thirst after righteousness, they all finished. Then they all fell to prayer and singing. Sandy turned her back to them, congregants more than students now, and opened her heart to the land below her. She felt the effrontery of the unmapped lake like a call over her face, a restriction on the land that prevented breath and life. Sandy showed them how to test the prevailing winds and how to bank the sensors in chevrons so that the cleansing fires would fall into the appropriate points along the dam. Finally, she thumbed an ashen symbol onto every wrist and forehead, including her own, and lit the oils of the censer primoris with a prayer. When the hungry flames began to beam outward from her censer, she softly repeated the prayer for emphasis, then nodded her assent that the rest begin. The dam did not burst in a spectacular explosion of mud and boulders and waters. Instead, it atrophied throughout the long afternoon, wearing away under their prayers, even as their voices grew hoarse. Eventually, the damned river itself joined its voice to theirs and speeded the correction. The unchurched in the valley tried for a few hours to pull their boats up onto the shore, but the muddy expanse between the water and their lurching docks grew too quickly. They turned their attention to bundling up the goods from their mean little houses then, and soon a line of them was snaking deeper into the mountains to the east like a line of ants fleeing a hill beneath a looking-glass. With the ridge to its west, the valley fell into evening shadow long before the cartographer's camp. They could still see below, though. They could see that, as Sandy had promised Carmen, there were no secrets revealed by the dying water.
And welcome back. There's something that Jesus said that, as a young evangelical Christian who thought every word of the Bible was not only true but literal, bothered me. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. If what Jesus said was true, did I not have the faith of the tiniest seed that I couldn't move mountains? This is incredibly naive of someone to think, I know. I'm sure Anne Leckie could explain in two minutes how destructive moving mountains from here to there would be to our world's environment, but it made me feel like my faith was pretty weak. These days, though, I'm struck with a different kind of dread, of Christians of different denominations moving mountains back and forth, arguing where those mountains should be. Okay, feedback this week is for Catherine M. Valente's Urchins While Swimming, Read by Diane Severson, the story of a Rusalka's tragic coming of age. One thing was pretty clear. Everyone loved Diane's reading, and particularly her singing. Feedback on the story was generally positive, although not completely. In particular, Max was pretty upset that someone drowned in a bed and pointed out what in his mind was a definite lack of internal logic. Malpocalypse said simply, More Valente, please. I love hearing her work read aloud. And Child of Tyranny said, among other things, adding to the chorus of voices, the singing was beautiful and narration was lovely. The tone and pace were perfect. Thanks to everyone for those comments. Also, a bit of a correction on my part. I mentioned that Ms. Valente had published three books in 2011. Weirdo corrected me, adding that her novella Silently and Very Fast was also published by WSFA Press. That novella was also nominated for Hugo, so check it out. You can listen to it for free at the Clark's World Podcast or read it. If you want to let us know what you thought of this week's story, see if you can charter a bus over to forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors so they can fight the tide of oppressive map makers everywhere with their own fantastical visions. If you can't afford to donate, please blog, tweet, tell a friend, or write a review on iTunes about us. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time when Garth Nix returns, trading in his swords and puppetry for some six-shooters and a rifle. In the meantime, Podcastle will make this world the way it was mapped. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. St. Francis of Assisi said, No one is to be called an enemy. All are your benefactors, and no one does you harm. You have no enemy except yourselves.